Hi everyone. I trust that you are well and that you've had a good week. With Easter fast approaching, I thought it would be good for us to take a break from our series Habits for Wholeness and turn our eyes and our thoughts and our hearts towards the cross of Jesus Christ. Easter is really the most important season in the life of the Christian church. And so over the next couple of weeks, let us consider him. The passage of scripture that I'd like us to consider today is taken from Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a person to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can a person give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is God's Word. I remember once reading an article by the comedian Dave Barry in which he addressed the five most difficult questions that wives ask their husbands, questions that strike terror into the heart of every husband. You're sitting there quietly minding your own business when out of the blue your wife will ask you one of these. What are you thinking? Do you love me? Do I look fat? Do you think she is prettier than me? What would you do if I died? Dave Barry says, What makes these questions so bad is that each one is guaranteed to explode into a major argument if the man does not answer properly, which is to say dishonestly. One of the problems with the questions that Jesus asked is that they too often led to some of the most uncomfortable conversations. And the question that Jesus asks here is no exception. Who do you say that I am? 
But Jesus doesn't ask this question in order to start an argument. He loves us and he wants the best for us. And he has two important goals in this conversation. He wants to revise our picture of who he is and revise our picture of what it means to follow him. Or perhaps we could say he wants to revise our picture of what it means to follow him by revising our picture of who he is. Let's look at each of those in turn. Firstly, Jesus wants to revise our picture of who he is. Mark tells us that this conversation took place near Caesarea Philippi, which is right up in the northern part of Israel, the borders of Gentile territory. The city had quite an infamous history. In the past, it had been a centre for the worship of the god Baal. In fact, its original name was either Baal Gad or Baal Haman. At the time of Jesus, it was associated with the worship of the Roman god Pan, so much of that whole region was known as Panias. And also, the city contained a huge white marble temple that was dedicated to the Roman emperor. The city's name, Caesarea, reflected the godlike status that the emperor had gained. And so it's significant that Jesus asks his question in amongst all these other gods and all this other wealth and all these other things that would vie for people's allegiance. Verse 27, Jesus asks, Who do people say I am? Well, in verse 28, the disciples give some of the popular opinions of the day. Some say John the Baptist. In fact, one of the most prominent politicians of the day, a man called Herod the Tetrarch, believed that Jesus was John the Baptist. Herod was the man who had beheaded John. But when he hears about all the things that Jesus is doing, he says in Matthew chapter 14, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others looked at the book of Malachi and the promise there that Elijah would come before the Messiah in order to prepare the way for him. And they looked at the miracles and the teaching of Jesus and said, He's Elijah, come to prepare the way. And still others thought that Jesus was a prophet. Think of the Samaritan woman at the well Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. There was much speculation as to who Jesus was. And still today, there are a variety of different ideas as to who Jesus was and is. John Lennon once said, Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. The feminist author Camille Paglia said, Jesus was a brilliant Jewish stand-up comedian, a phenomenal improviser. His parables are great one-liners. Mikhail Gorbachev, the former Russian president, once said, Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. No surprises there then. The playwright George Bernard Shaw said, whether you think Jesus was God or not, you must admit he was a first-rate political economist. Prince Philip once said, 
he might be described as an underprivileged working-class victim of political and religious persecution. So, many different understandings of who Jesus is, many of which honour him, but all of which are ultimately wrong. But Jesus' next question cuts through these popular beliefs about him, both in the disciples' day and within our own day. Verse 29. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? And that is a question that is directed at each one of us today. In the midst of all sorts of other things vying to claim our allegiance, amongst all the many different opinions as to who Jesus is, Jesus addresses us directly and asks, Who do you say that I am? You see, it's not what my neighbour thinks. It's not what my husband or wife believes. It's what I believe that really counts. Who is this man called Jesus, who divided all of human history into two eras, before Christ and after Christ? Who is this man whose birth the whole world commemorates at Christmas and whose death we are about to commemorate at Easter? Who is this man that the disciples worshipped as God? Was he a liar? Was he a lunatic? Or could it be that he really was God Almighty come in the flesh? And if so, what does that mean for me? These are questions on which we cannot be neutral. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Well, this question is actually something that the disciples have been pondering since at least Mark chapter 4, when Jesus calmed the storm. Mark tells us that the disciples asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. But having spent time with Jesus, listening to what he said and watching what he did, the penny finally drops and here, right in the middle of Mark's gospel, Peter articulates for the very first time the conclusion that they had slowly come to. Verse 29, you are the Messiah. In other words, the anointed one, the promised king who would save his people. Peter has got it right. Or has he? So interesting that in response to Peter's declaration, Jesus does two things. Firstly, verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Not because he wasn't the Messiah, or because he was naturally shy and retiring, or because he didn't want the attention, but because people didn't have the right idea of what the Messiah would be like. You see, in Jesus' day, people thought the Messiah would be an earthly king, probably an army general who would boot the Romans out of Israel and set up his earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. So Jesus tells his disciples not to say to people that he is the Messiah, not because he's not, but because they have an incorrect understanding of who Messiah is. And then secondly, Jesus redefines the concept of the Messiah for his disciples. Verse 31, 
He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Jesus revises the picture of who the Messiah is and why he has come. He uses the title, The Son of Man, which is an Old Testament title, which over time also referred to the coming king. It comes from the book of Daniel, where Daniel sees someone who looks like a son of man. He looks just like an ordinary human being, and yet he is given all the power of God himself. Let me read to you from Daniel chapter 7. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that is God himself, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus is saying that he himself is this son of man who appears to be just a human being and yet has received the authority, glory and sovereign power of God himself because he is God. And yet, he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected and killed. In other words, in his person and in his ministry and in his teaching, Jesus combines two biblical pictures. He combines the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7 and the Suffering Servant from Isaiah 53. The Son of Man, with all his glory and authority, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Jesus redefines what the messianic king, what the son of man looks like. The son of man, the Messiah, reigns from a cross. But mental pictures are not as changeable as light bulbs. Verse 32. When Peter hears this, we read, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Peter wants a successful Messiah, a ruling Messiah, a powerful Messiah. Why? Because he believes that some of his hero's success will rub off on him. We understand this in our own lives, don't we? When the Springboks win the Rugby World Cup, we say, we won. And when Bafana Bafana get knocked out in the qualifiers, we say, they lost. Peter prefers a successful king to a suffering king because he grasps the implications. Follow a successful king and you will share in his success. Follow a suffering king and you share in his sufferings. It's so interesting to see in the Gospels that whenever anybody except Jesus rebukes someone, they get it wrong. So the disciples rebuke the mothers who want Jesus to bless their children. They get it wrong. 
The crowds rebuke the blind man who calls out to Jesus. They get it wrong. The disciples rebuke the woman who pours perfume on Jesus' feet. They get it wrong. And the same is true here. In rebuking Jesus, Peter gets it wrong. Only Jesus has the authority to rebuke. And so Jesus in turn does rebuke Peter. And not just Peter. Verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he needs to get their attention because they've actually been thinking the same thing. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but merely human concerns. Peter wants Jesus to look like his image of what the Messiah should look like. His idea of who Jesus is and what he should be doing doesn't reflect God's priorities, but merely human concerns. And Jesus recognises that behind Peter's statement lies Satan's ongoing attempt to get him to bypass the cross. But what about us? What is our picture of who Jesus is? Perhaps we too prefer the idea of Jesus as a triumphant, powerful ruler, so that we too can share in his glory and power. We want a king who will give us the things that we want, a better job, a marriage partner, a better marriage partner. I suspect that all too often we have in mind merely human concerns and not the things of God. C.S. Lewis, the Cambridge professor and former atheist, well known for his Narnia books, once put it this way. We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, liked to see young people enjoying themselves, and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. What would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything we happened to like doing, what does it matter so long as they are contented? In one of his books, Pastor Timothy Keller speaks about the concept of a Stepford God. Remember the movie, The Stepford Wives? Husbands of Stepford, Connecticut, decide to have their wives turned into robots who never cross the will of their husbands. A Stepford wife was wonderfully compliant and beautiful, but no one would describe such a marriage as intimate or personal. If a wife isn't allowed to contradict her husband, they won't have an intimate relationship. Similarly, if you have a God who can never be contradicted, you will not have a truly personal, intimate God. You will have a Stepford God, a God essentially of your own making, and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Stuart Briscoe, who is a well-known pastor, once wrote this, I fear that sometimes people get the impression that God exists to meet their needs. The problem then is if God exists primarily to meet their needs, 
he is in danger of becoming, in many people's minds, nothing more than the needs meter in the sky. People who are attracted to God on this basis are notoriously reluctant to progress further into a relationship with him that realistically could be called discipleship. All too often, we want a Jesus who makes us happy. And so Jesus has to revise our picture because his goal isn't our happiness, but our holiness. He wants us to look like him. And in revising our picture of who he is, Jesus also revises our picture of what it means to follow him. That's our second main heading, what it means to follow him. When Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, he's not just using a technique for avoiding temptation. In a very real sense, he's showing Peter his place. What is a follower? It is someone who stays behind someone else and copies what they do. And having called Peter to put himself in the place of a follower, Jesus goes on to describe in greater detail what it means to follow him. Verse 34, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Notice that Jesus calls the crowd to himself along with his disciples because the things that he's going to outline apply to everyone, anyone who would come after him. And it consists of three things. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, which probably shouldn't be separated out into three distinct categories. I think we tend to do that with this verse. We're happy with the follow me part, and we feel that if we get one out of three right, then we're still okay. But actually, in the context of what Jesus says here, following him means going where he is going, towards suffering and death. In other words, we follow Jesus by denying ourselves and dying to ourselves. Let's look at those two elements individually for a moment. Firstly, we follow Jesus by denying ourselves. The word deny is a very strong word. It's the same word that is used when Peter denies Jesus. In the words of verse 35, denying ourselves means to lose our life for Jesus and for the gospel. To deny myself means to give up my right to self-determination. One pastor says that when we deny ourselves, we take a blank piece of paper and we sign it at the bottom and we give it to God and say, now you fill in the rest. Secondly, we follow Jesus by dying to ourselves. That's the picture of taking up our cross. Remember that Jesus uses this picture before his own death on a cross, but he is using an image that his hearers would have been very familiar with under Roman rule. They would have thought about the rebel from their village or the runaway slave who'd been recaptured. They'd seen that man go off with a little band of Roman soldiers carrying his cross all the way to the place of crucifixion. Taking up a cross referred to a death march. 
When a man took up his cross, he was going on a one-way journey from which there was no returning. He was going to die. To take up our cross means to die to ourselves. In his version of this incident, Luke records Jesus as saying, we are to take up our cross daily. Because dying for Jesus isn't a physical event that comes at the very end of an otherwise peaceful and comfortable life. There is much more to it than that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who died in 1945, put it best in his little book called The Cost of Discipleship. At the beginning of the book, Bonhoeffer writes these words, Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Every command of Jesus is a call to die with all our affections and lusts. The call to discipleship, the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, means both death and life. Suffering, then, is the badge of true discipleship. If we refuse to take up our cross and submit to suffering and rejection at the hands of men, we forfeit our fellowship with Christ and have ceased to follow him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew what he was talking about because he did eventually pay the ultimate price for his faith. Bonhoeffer was one of the German pastors who opposed Hitler's Nazi Germany. He was arrested and put in jail and he was executed under the express orders of Heinrich Himmler just a few days before the concentration camp at Flossenburg was liberated by the Allies. Erwin Lutzer wrote a book about Bonhoeffer called Hitler's Cross, and at one point in the book he writes this, If we ask why Bonhoeffer had the courage to be martyred, we can only answer that he died many times before he was hanged at the concentration camp in Flossenburg. He was passionately convinced that discipleship meant death, death to our own comforts, death to our own agendas, and when necessary, physical death too. That's a powerful quote. Bonhoeffer died many times before he was hanged died to family, died to possessions, died to self. That is what it means to take up our cross. Following Jesus by denying myself and dying to myself applies to all sorts of different areas of my life, but let me highlight just three that I think are important. Firstly, Following Jesus by denying and dying to myself applies to temptation. Here is one way of overcoming temptation. I can deliberately choose to think that not doing certain things are an expression of my following Christ in suffering and death. Because not giving in to temptation does involve suffering. Speaking about Jesus, the book of Hebrews says this, Because he himself suffered 
when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Not giving in to temptation causes me suffering, whether that's an internal feeling or whether it's something that I have to give up. And I can deliberately choose to accept that suffering as an expression of the fact that I love Jesus and am seeking to follow him. So are there places that I am not going, things I am not watching, relationships I'm not pursuing? And while it hurts and it's difficult, I'm prepared to accept that pain as part of what it means to follow Jesus. Notice then the subtle danger in embracing a version of Christianity that says we must always be happy. It's not too big a jump to start believing that God wouldn't deny me this sinful thing if it makes me happy. Secondly, following Jesus by denying and dying to myself applies to trials. Amy Carmichael was a British missionary who served in India for 55 years during the late 1800s and early 1900s. So interesting, as a young girl, she hated her brown eyes and prayed that God would change them to blue. It was only when she got to India that she realised that having brown eyes made it easier to serve God there among people who all had brown eyes. She was one of those great pioneer missionaries who served God under very difficult circumstances. One of the greatest difficulties that missionaries face is not the difficulty with foreign food or the difficulty with foreign culture or language, but the difficulties with fellow missionaries. And in her early years in India, Amy lived with a number of other missionary ladies, one of whom she described as being unfair and curiously dominating in certain ways and words. And Amy wrote about something that took place in her interactions with this difficult lady. She says, One day I felt the I, the me, in me, rising hotly, and quite clearly, so clearly that I could show you the place on the floor of the room where I was standing when I heard it, the word came, See in it a chance to die. To this day, that word is life and release to me, and it has been to many others. See in this which seems to stir up all you most wish were not stirred up. See in it a chance to die to self in every form. Accept it as just that, a chance to die. Elizabeth Elliot, whose own husband, Jim Elliot, was martyred for his faith, wrote a biography on the life of Amy Carmichael, and she called it A Chance to Die, The Life and Legacy of Amy Carmichael. The Apostle James famously, or perhaps infamously, begins his little letter in this way, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I can take the trials that come my way, and while I may pray that they are taken from me, 
I can see them as an aspect of my discipleship, knowing his grace is sufficient for me and his power is made perfect in my weakness. And knowing too that through suffering, God can form Jesus in me, the Jesus who himself suffered. And then thirdly, following Jesus by denying and dying to myself not only applies to temptation and trials, it applies to Christian ministry. The word ministry is used a great deal within Christian circles these days. We might say that someone has an anointed ministry, by which we mean that God really uses them to bless others through their preaching or worship leading. We might say that after the service, we'll have a time of ministry. We refer to people entering the ministry, by which we mean that men and women are called and trained and set apart for full-time work in the church. Mike Pierce wrote a little book on ministry called Who's Feeding Whom? And at one point he says this, Ministry has become far too self-conscious. Most of our thinking about ministry focuses on the one doing the ministering. As long as I'm seeking my ministry, hoping to refine it so that it becomes better and more admirable, asking God's blessing upon it, and so really upon me, then I've not begun to take hold of Jesus' call upon my life at all. The word ministry means service, and the word minister means servant. Now, of course, there's a great deal of joy and satisfaction that comes from Christian service, but it is possible for ministry to be more about what we gain rather than what we give. We have to take seriously Jesus' words in verse 35, whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. True ministry, true service means losing my life for the sake of the gospel, making sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. On the 5th of February, 1885, a train pulled out of Victoria Station in London. Hundreds of people saw it off. It contained seven men, nicknamed the Cambridge Seven. And for the previous several months, the nation of Britain had been gripped by the scandal of these young men dropping out of society and going off to darkest China as missionaries. Each had given up a fortune, a place in society, a promising future. Among them was C.T. Studd, a Cambridge and English cricketer, an idol in terms of sport. After 40 years of serving in China, he went to Africa. He died in Congo in 1931. Another was D.E. Horst, who resigned his commission in the army and stayed in China for 60 years. A third was Beaucamp, an aristocrat and contemporary of Stud at Cambridge. He became an itinerant evangelist, in poverty-stricken West China. While he was in China, he received from his older brother in England, who had no son to succeed him, an offer of a substantial share in his fortune if he would abandon the mission in China and return to England. He refused. He died aged 80 in China in 1939. And if we were to ask why, why did these men go? 
leaving such promising and comfortable lives in Victorian Britain and trading that for the squalor and obscurity of 19th century China or Africa? Well, the answer is C.T. Studd's words. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Notice how Studd's picture of Jesus, of who Jesus is, affected his understanding of what it meant to follow Jesus. We follow Jesus through denying ourselves and dying to ourselves. One writer that I read recently asks this uncomfortable question. So what have you denied yourself to follow Jesus? There must be something. If there's nothing, then you are not really following the Jesus who speaks to you here. What is the suffering? What are the real crosses you have intentionally embraced because you are his disciple? Is it the painful distance between you and your non-Christian family because you now follow Jesus and keep trying to persuade them to follow him too? Is it a loving perseverance in a deeply unhappy marriage? Is it denying your children what their peers all enjoy so that gospel ministry can happen? What sacrifices am I making as an expression of my obedience to Jesus? Sacrifices in terms of my temptations, my trials, and my acts of Christian service. We've looked at a lot this morning, and there's still much more that we could look at in these verses. We haven't touched the last part of this passage, but as we close, let's do so. Because if the desire to be like Jesus is not enough for us, Jesus gently and lovingly gives us another reason to follow him. From verse 35, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a person to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can a person give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Does this mean that we live a life of horrible, self-giving service here on earth and then die and get eternal life? No, Jesus isn't just speaking about what happens when we die. He's speaking about a quality of life right here and now. In the words of St. Francis, it is in giving that we receive. It's in pardoning that we are pardoned. It's in dying that we are born to life, life in all its fullness, right here and right now. Choose to hold on to what we call our life now, and we lose it, both in this life and the next. Choose to give up our life now, and we get it back, both in this life and in the next. Following Jesus will cost us everything we have, but actually not following Jesus will also cost us. Dallas Willard puts it this way in one of his books, and with this we will close. Non-discipleship costs. Non-discipleship costs abiding peace. It costs a life penetrated throughout by love. 
It costs faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good. Non-discipleship costs hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances. It costs power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, non-discipleship costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. The cross-shaped yoke of Christ is an instrument of liberation and power to those who live in it with him and learn the meekness and lowliness of heart that brings rest to the soul. And so may God grant that in the week that lies ahead, our ambition may be the same as that expressed by the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Amen.